Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Please give ear to the reading of God's holy word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the reading of God's word. Once again, I'd like to say happy Mother's Day to the moms here. I understand that Mother's Day can be complicated. For some of us, Mother's Day is a day of celebration. It's a day that we look forward to. It's the one day of the year where we can express our deep affections for our beloved mothers. It's the day of the year where your beloved family gets to celebrate you and let you know how much they love you. For others... Mother's Day can be disappointing. It's a day of disappointment because compared to how other moms are celebrated, at least from the examples you see on social media, it seems like their families go all out for them, but your family doesn't do as much. And so Mother's Day is disappointing because it perpetuates your belief that your children and spouse don't appreciate you, that they take you for granted. And so you're left feeling a little bit envious and bitter. For others, Mother's Day is disappointing 
Because if there's one area in your life where you feel like you fall short, if there's one area in your life where you feel like a failure, it's your role as a mother. You wish you could throw lavish parties for your kids. You wish you had the time to make healthy lunches for your kids. But because finances are tight, you have to work. And so every evening, you can't help but feel guilty. My kids deserve more. I wish I could be better. Yet for still others, Mother's Day is a day of pain. On this day, you're reminded of the child you had to bury or the mother you lost. On this day, you're reminded of your infertility. You're reminded of your estranged relationship with your mom or with one of your kids. Yes, Mother's Day is complicated. For those of us who feel less than whole today, less than celebratory, for those who feel unappreciated and taken for granted, for those who are grieving, for those who are still trying to process loss, for those of us who feel small and far from God, I've got wonderful news for you. Our God is a God who draws near to the brokenhearted, who draws near to the faint-hearted. In his upside-down kingdom, feeling weak is better than feeling powerful. Feeling desperate is better than feeling strength. And it's my prayer that the Lord ministers to all of us who are feeling less than celebratory on this day. Let me give you a thumbnail sketch of what's going on in our passage. Last week, Pastor Lewis preached on Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus literally and figuratively experiences a mountaintop experience. We get a sneak peek into his heavenly glory as the glory of God literally radiates from his face. Jesus' supremacy is highlighted as Moses, Elijah, and the disciples stand in awe of who he is. Even God the Father himself gets in on the action as he declares from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But as you may have heard, all good things must come to an end. And such is the case with Jesus' mountaintop experience. Waiting for him below are the rest of the nine disciples. And so Jesus, together with the other three, go down to the bottom of the mountain where awaiting for them is the harsh reality of the brokenness and fallenness of this world. Waiting for them is chaos as he hears his disciples in a dispute with the scribes. What are they fighting over? Most likely, 
They're fighting and disputing over the failed exorcism. For some reason, though the disciples have been successful before in casting out demons, this one demon they fail to cast out, and the scribes pounce on this rare opportunity to expose them. You guys say you're from God, then how come you can't exercise this demon? You guys are all a sham. And in the midst of the bitter dispute, you have a grieving father and ailing son who once again have their hopes dashed. Yet beauty emerges from the chaos. Jesus calms the storm, and in doing so, he teaches us three things about faith. Three principles we learn about faith. We learn about where faith comes from, what faith looks like, and how faith grows. Start with the first principle, where faith comes from. Our passage illustrates where faith comes from and where it does not come from. Where it doesn't come from is found in the very last verse of our passage. In the last verse, Jesus explains to the disciples why they were unable to exercise this demon. He says in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by, uh, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, at first blush, you might think that Jesus is highlighting the superior power of this demon. Guys, the reason why you failed is because this demon is no ordinary demon. He's like one of those enemies at the end of a level who's bigger than everyone else. That's why you guys failed. But in actuality, when you take a closer look, he's not highlighting the superior power of the demon. Rather, he's lowlighting the disciples' inferior foolishness. Guys, did you really think you can cast this demon out without prayer? Who in the world do you think you are that you think you could actually perform a miracle without asking God for help? I don't think this was always the case for the disciples. I'm quite confident that back in chapter 6, when Jesus first sent the disciples out on their mission where they preached, healed, and exercised demons, I am sure in that inaugural mission, the, the disciples prayed every chance they could get. Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I don't know what to say but God, please speak through me. Please heal these people through me. Please cast these demons out because God, I don't have the power to do these things on my own. They clung to Jesus for help. They sought Jesus with all their strength for victory. They knew that they could accomplish nothing without God. 
But somewhere along the way, between chapter 6 and chapter 9, they stopped praying. The more they healed, the more they exercised demons, the more experience they gained, the less they trusted in God, the less they relied on God, and instead trusted in themselves. Now do you see why Jesus says in exasperation in verse 19, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He's talking about the disciples. He calls them faithless because they no longer trust in God. They trust in themselves. You see, prayer is ultimately an expression of our dependence upon God. The more you pray, the more you depend upon him. The less you pray, the less you're saying to God, I need you. A prayerful life is a life that believes, I need you, God. I can't do anything on my own. A prayerless life is a life that says to God, I got this. I don't need you. My resources are enough. Why else do we not pray? And so we see where faith doesn't come from. Faith does not grow in the soil of self-sufficiency. Faith does not grow in the soil of self-reliance. Independence stifles faith. Pride suffocates faith. Dear friends, are there areas in your life where you are saying to God, I got this, I don't need you. Are there areas in your life that can only be handled by prayer that you're telling God, no, I, I don't think I need you here? Are there areas in your life where you once fervently prayed for, but now you rarely ever pray for? Perhaps the first day on the job, you were asking God, God, please help me to be a light and witness here. Please help me to show Christ through the good work I do and the kindness that I display to my co-workers. You understood your need for God in the beginning, but now you go to work without even thinking of God. Perhaps when you first stepped up to the altar, and you're about to receive your spouse and say, I do, you blanketed that day with prayer saying, God, I am not worthy to call this spouse my own. Lord, help me to show him or her the love of Christ. Help me to encourage this person in the love of Christ. But now, when was the last time you asked God, God, help me to be a better spouse? Or perhaps the day you brought your newborn home from the hospital with fear and trembling, you said, God, I am not worthy to be a mom or a dad. 
What a huge blessing this is, Lord. Lord, help me not to mess this up. Lord, please use me so that my baby will grow up to follow you, know you, and walk with you. Our prayerlessness communicates one of two things. It either communicates, I don't need you, or it communicates that your bar has dropped dramatically and your aspirations are not as high as they once were. I must say that I can relate to the disciples here. I look back on the very first sermon I ever had to preach, 1995, Good Friday. I was a first year in seminary. Yes, I know I'm dating myself. I remember how desperately I asked God for help. Throughout the preparation, throughout the writing, the practicing, I remember asking my friends and church family, Lord, please pray for me. Now, more than 20 years later, I did the math. I, I, I've preached almost a thousand times since then. And I can tell you that I don't pray as desperately as I used to. I don't pray as fervently as I used to. Why? I believe it's because over time I began to trust less in God and more and more upon my experience, more and more upon my giftedness. I believe God's calling me to repent of that self-reliance. Yet standing as a foil to the disciples, standing in contrast to the self-relying, prayerless disciples is the desperate father of the sick boy. And through him, we see where faith comes from. It comes from weakness. It comes from desperation. The father comes to Jesus because he knows that he himself can't heal his son. He comes to Jesus and begs him because he knows he in himself is utterly powerless. If strength stifles faith, then weakness fuels faith. Desperation drives faith. The beginning of faith is not in realizing that we are okay, but in realizing that we are not okay. It's not in becoming convinced that we are superior than everybody else, but rather in realizing that we are no better than anyone else. It's not in believing that we are strong and capable and competent, but in accepting that we are frail, incapable, and incompetent. This is the soil where faith grows from. And so if you are feeling this this morning, I want you to see that as a gift from the Lord that he is using to drive you and lead you to him so that you might live less upon your strength and instead lean upon his. So if that's where faith comes from, the soil of weakness, let's move on to principle number two, what faith looks like. 
in our passage, we see that faith sometimes looks flimsy. We see this in verse 22, where the father asks Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I want us to think about that phrase, if you can. If you think about it, that phrase communicates doubt and uncertainty, doesn't it? If I went up to you after service and said, said hey, can you, can you put away the chairs if you can? you might feel a little bit slighted. What do you mean if I can? You know how light these chairs are? Of course I can. Well, in the same way, Jesus perceives the father's doubt and pounces on it. He says in verse 23, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus says, the question is not on whether or not I can heal your son. Of course I can heal your son. The question is whether or not you believe. As you can see, though the man has faith in Jesus, enough faith to come seek Jesus and ask Jesus for healing, that faith this man possesses is small and flimsy at best. And so Jesus confronts the man about his flimsy faith. And I love the father's response in verse 24. And if there's a verse you want to memorize this week, this would be a good one. The father says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I love the Father's raw honesty. Jesus, I do believe in you, but Jesus, I also have my doubts about you. To our surprise, Jesus doesn't turn the Father away. He doesn't say, come back when you're more sure of me. Come back when your doubts are gone. I only deal with those who have strong faith. No, Jesus receives him even with his flimsy faith and in the very next verse heals his son. And something interesting happens when Jesus casts out the demon. Verse 26, that upon exiting the boy, the boy appears to have died. He undergoes rigor mortis and is now stiff as a corpse. And so I can only imagine now where the father's flimsy faith is. If he struggled with doubts before the miracle, how much more now that his boy looks dead? Jesus, I wanted you to heal him, not kill him. Indeed, there are times in life where it seems like Jesus is doing the opposite of what we ask him. There are times in life where you might say, God, I believe you are good, but why another miscarriage? God, I trust 
that you are the Jehovah Jireh. You are the provider. But why won't you provide me a job? God, I believe your will is perfect and pleasing. But why won't you heal my cancer? I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. John Calvin once observed that all Christians are partly unbelievers until we die. What does this episode teach us? I think God is trying to help us to see that having doubts is okay. Having a weak faith is okay. You see, the beauty of Christianity is that our hope is not in our faith. Our hope is not in our faith. It's not in the strength of our faith, the intensity of our faith, or the consistency of our faith, or the faithfulness of our faith. Rather, our hope is in the object of our faith. In Christianity, we are not saved by faith. We are saved by Christ through faith. Jesus is the one who saves us, not our faith. We don't have faith in our faith. Faith is simply the instrument, the channel that connects us to the saving power of Jesus, like a straw that delivers our drink to our mouth. Our faith delivers Jesus' salvation to our souls. Now, some of us might have faith the size of a coffee stir, barely able to suck, while others of us might have faith the size of a boba straw. But whether your faith is thin or thick, you can rest assured that you are loved, you are redeemed, you are God's beloved child because the efficacy of your faith comes from the one you believe in, and that is Jesus. You can agree to get your gallbladder removed by a surgeon and go into that surgery having all kinds of doubts about the outcome of that surgery. You may look at your surgeon's profile and, and you saw that he's only been practicing for a couple of years and you don't even recognize the name of the med school he graduated from. And to top it all off, he's got glasses that are thick. How in the world is he going to see through those glasses? And so you have all these doubts about your surgery. But we all know that whether you believe strongly in your surgeon or weakly, the outcome of that surgery has nothing to do with what you think about your surgeon and everything to do about the surgeon's own skills and ability. Praise God that though our faith waxes and wanes, 
Jesus is steadfast and sure. Praise God that the surgeon of our souls is capable. That when he's entrusted with a hundred sheep, he returns with a hundred sheep. He is the good shepherd and loses not one. Such is the comfort we have in the strong hands of God that even when we let go of him, he holds fast to us. This leads us to the final point of our passage. Where does faith come from? It comes from weakness. How does, what does faith look like? Oftentimes it looks very flimsy, but how does faith grow? Faith grows progressively. It's a process. You see, for those who think faith is an all or none concept, they have a hard time with this passage. If faith is absolute assurance and conviction or no belief at all, what do you do with I believe, help my unbelief? It doesn't make sense. But if you understand faith as a process, then you can totally understand what the Father is saying. In fact, it helps us understand why the disciples have such a hard time believing and following Jesus. We've already seen their faithlessness here as they attempt to do a circ- uh, 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 an exorcism, not circumcision, an exorcism without prayer. Big difference. Prior to this, we've seen the disciples straining in their grasp of Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, when they're on the boat and a storm comes, Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In Mark chapter 6, Jesus performs a miracle and feeds the 5,000. But Mark later tells us that the disciples did not understand what was going on because their hearts were hardened. In Mark chapter 8, we just read how Jesus rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan, right after Peter rightly acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God. Even after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, we see Peter needing to be rebuked publicly by Paul in Galatians chapter 2. Over and over again, the disciples fall on their faces. They stumble forward. Perhaps God is trying to help us see that faith is a process. We see this principle illustrated in one of Jesus' miracles. We overlooked it in chapter 8, but in chapter 8, Jesus heals a blind man from Bethsaida. Let me read verses 23 through 25 for you. It reads, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. 
What do you notice about this healing? It doesn't come all at once, does it? It comes in stages. The first time Jesus heals him, he sees, but not clearly, he sees trees walking around. And so Jesus heals him again until he realizes these aren't trees, these are people. This miracle is Jesus' way of saying, so too is your faith. It won't come all at once. It comes progressively in stages. As we've heard so many times during the pandemic, our faith is not an off and on switch, all or none, but more like a dimmer switch. And it's not even linear either. I've learned it goes up and down, two steps forward, three steps back, and and so on and so forth. We need to hear this, beloved, because I've noticed something insidious, insidious, I mean, about Christians. As Christians, we understand the gospel of grace. As Christians, we understand we're saved by grace. As Christians, we understand that God loves us unconditionally. But for some reason, the harshest critic, the most oppressive critic in our lives is ourselves. Though we receive God's grace, we don't extend that same grace to ourselves as our inner voice condemns us and criticizes us over and over again. So that when we fall short, we bury ourselves in a mountain of shame. And when we feel all this shame, we, then it leads us to unhealthy coping mechanisms to deal with that shame. But if we see that faith is a process, if we understand that we are all in the middle of our own sanctification, then the next time we sin, perhaps we'll be a little bit more gracious to ourselves and less condemning. Perhaps we'll see ourselves the way God sees us. And do you know who needs to hear this the most? Moms. Moms tend to be the harshest critics of themselves. And if we're harsh with ourselves, that then leads us to be harsh with others. On this day, I believe God is inviting us to see that our weakness is not a liability but an asset. That God wants us to respond to our weaknesses by going to the only one who can heal us and strengthen us and make us feel good, and that is him. Only then, by running to the cross, will we find the strength to move forward. Only then, by running to the cross, will we have the faith to pick ourselves up and to follow after him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this miracle. Thank you for this 
father. Thank you for his flimsy and flailing faith. We can't help but see ourselves in him, Lord. And we're so grateful, Lord, that our salvation does not rest upon our faith, but rather in the object of our faith. I thank you, O Lord, that though our grip on you waxes and wanes throughout this journey, you hold fast to us. We pray, Father, that you would speak peace to the tired and weary souls here, especially those who are overwhelmed by shame and guilt and condemnation. May, you, may we experience your love through and through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.